0: This is Super Yacht Radio.
1: Welcome to Super Yacht Radio and welcome to the series of Seize the Mind, where I'm here, Maeve, in Dublin, and I will be chatting over the next few weeks with Emma.
0: Hi, I'm Emma Ross. I am a mental health first aider with Seize Mind and Kelly's Cause. And we are gonna be talking about um, topics around mental health and raising some awareness of mental health in yachting.
1: Welcome to art Radio, and welcome to this episode of "Seize the Mind," where I'm here with my co-host Emma Ross. And this week, we will be discussing, um, really discussing and understanding a lot. In a lot more depth about addictions. Uh, We do have coming up in our next episode, uh, we have a guest who is the crew counselor, Karen, who's joining us. And we're going to be looking at substance abuse on board and the support that you have. But before we kind of got there, I wanted to introduce a special guest of mine, Maud Ray, who is a very dear friend of mine, but also uh, my expert in this field. So, Maud. Oh, my God, she's called me an expert. Yes. No, this is bad. Well, in comparison um, to myself and Emma today, you are our resident um, expert.
2: I, yeah, I, I, I keep myself as a student because then it, it doesn't put me in the place of an expert. But yes, I do know a lot about addiction. I'm a, I'm a trained psychosexual therapist um, and counselor, and I deal a lot with... Um, all manners of traumas and um, angst from all sorts on an international basis um with a psychological background as well because that's uh, that was my original bachelor um addiction being the middle name of humanity it's pretty much in uh, in the heart of of every single session that i have with with clients and patients yeah
1: wow so um Mod, before we kind of go into it, Emma, you is this part of the mental health first aid training when people are coming in? And just before we kind of get into the understanding of it, how does this fit in with your platform?
0: Um, It's definitely something that we approach and we talk about and um, we get our delegates to talk about and to think um, introspectively about maybe their relationships with something, because I think we have a very um, sheltered view of what addiction is, you know, for us In modern times, an addict is someone, you know, that's lying on the street with a needle hanging out their arm, that's lost all hope, that has no family. Um, But there's lots of different types of connection, you know, behavioral connection, substance um, addiction, um, so we get people to just expand what they, what they know. We ask them what they know, first of all. We then get them to expand uh, what they know, have conversations about it. And then within our platform, what we talk about is um, starting conversations with people and uh, listening non-judgmentally. And I think with addicts, we have a real problem when it comes down to judgment. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of moral judgment that we ask people and we, we encourage people to suspend when they're talking to addicts. Um, and then we we are the kind of middle person. We're first aiders. So, um, what our last two um, kind of uh, parts of our uh, al- not algorithm um, acronym is encourage professional support. Someone like Maud, a GP. Um, talking therapies, maybe group therapy, the 12-step program, whatever's available to them, whatever's available in terms of um, something that they connect with, something that's maybe worked for them in the past. Um, physically, geographically, something that's available. I know now things are going more online, but also financially, what's available to people. Um, in yachting, we're very um, we're very lucky that we we get good salaries and we can afford uh, private talking therapies, but we're also aware that people might be assisting. Um, friends and family at home and maybe they don't um, have access to talking therapy so maybe finding out groups that are available um, nearby and just as a matter of fact in England um, you'd have to look up individually in the countries you're in but in England um, groups up to 12 can still meet in AA groups uh, drug uh, anonymous alcohol anonymous sex anonymous so those are still available to people. So yeah, that's how we kind of get involved is starting conversations and uh, teaching people how to scaffold help around themselves and others that they care about with addictions. Mm.
1: Okay. So I thought that it would be really good if we could start, because I, I think sometimes the biggest problem sometimes with stigma is not really understanding things very well do you know from misunderstanding of what actually is happening and you know you were mentioning about moral judgment uh there's also the personal judgment that comes with it depending on someone's background and culture so i thought a really good place to start this conversation was to bring in my lovely Maud um, and to kind of help us understand I mean, from the little bit of research I know is, you know, addiction is a very complex. It is a
2: complex um, affair. Affair, (laughs)
1: indeed.
2: Perhaps we could start by saying that we are all addict. Every every single one of us is. And then we could um, say that the first thing we have to do in order to demystify it is to rewrite the narrative that we have for it. I'm going to go on a limb and say that addiction, as we know it, is perhaps the wrong thing to say and to conceptualize. So we are wired in the first place. You've got different stance to, to, the, pro, to the, the potential issues. You've got a biological stance, neuropsychology, environmental and cultural. And all of, of that together leads us to have our own biases and, and, and as you quite rightly say, lots of misunderstanding and shame around, around it. But we are wired um, to seek novelty. We are wired to, to seek reward and our brain from a biological point of view it, it finds it difficult to wait And so we're looking for the dopamine. We're looking for, for the endorphin and the next hit. That's the biological affair. That's our ancient brain and that's still there and we still have to contend with. You then have the fact that your environment and your ancestry will have an enormous role to play in how addiction will manifest in your life. So say... Um, if you come from a violent background and you touch alcohol by the age of 14, you're about seven, I think, seven times more likely to become an alcoholic than a person who's had a loving, unconditional love during their childhood. So, your environment, your culture, the way you've been brought up, the, the attachments you formed as, as an infant are are really 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 big influences perhaps perhaps more than genetic in a way when you think about it you were gonna say emma
0: i yeah i totally agree with you 100 um i think it's really interesting that you brought this up so there's uh in researching this there's a an amazing doctor called dr gabor mate oh uh, yes he's incredible so he really is like he's taken one of the first people in this um, in this sphere to take a compassionate and empathetic view to addiction. Now, his background is um, he is a um, he's a Jew from um, I think from Belarus. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, um, but he arrived in Vancouver. He worked as a doctor, he was a GP. He then went into the downtown of Vancouver and started a thing called Insight. He then spent 12 years of his life really kind of like immersed in addiction, in the kinds of addiction that we were talking about, you know, the, the train spotting addiction that's been publicized so well and dramatized for our kind of viewing pleasure. Um, and he writes a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which I highly recommend if you've got any kind of interest in this subject or you have an addict that you want to help. Because he he, he approaches all of this with, there is pain, pain is the origin, trauma is the origin of addiction, and it's also the end of addiction. And throughout all of that, and I think there's an Eckhart's holy um, quote that says, addiction begins in pain and ends in pain. So rather than um, Gabal Maté kind of treating the end, which was the addicts, the kind of the person on the street, the person that had lost all hope, he was treating the person at the beginning of that addiction. He was, wasn't asking, why are you an addict? He was asking, why are you in pain? Where is the trauma? And he he started the treatment from there, which I thought was fascinating. So, yeah, I just wanted to expand on that point.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's is uh, is I wouldn't say a pioneer, but is um is definitely one of the the voices that is the strongest at the moment when it comes to rewriting that narrative and really demystifying it. And absolutely, uh, absolutely love his work. His work finds his uh, his way through through the therapy room um, most of the time. There is such a, a deep relation and symbiotic relationship between your body and mind and what stays in it and how to articulate it consciously. And so the, the way perhaps we could talk about addiction is is more of the inability of the person to be able to live the cycle of emotions. So to be able to sense perceive to live it to dispel it and to then do it all over again which is things we do thousands millions of times in our life billions of times in our life but very often on that cycle we stay stuck in some places because in order to be able to live that cycle of emotions we have to be able to have both consciousness and awareness awareness of that consciousness and of course As we grow and we develop as an infant to an adult, our awareness and consciousness changes. When you put a violent environment, when you put intergenerational trauma in the way of that consciousness and awareness, you then stay stuck. And then instead of being able to perceive emotions, you then create a parallel narrative in your life in which you can develop addiction. Because instead of being able to live it fully, you then seek it on the outside. Why the loneliness?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know he talks about it a lot. There's also another professor called Peter Cohen in the Netherlands who, who said, maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction. Maybe we should call it bonding. Like human, human beings, If we look at our anthropological origins, we have an innate and natural need to bond. And when we're happy and when we're content and when we most of all, when we feel safe, when we're going through those formative years, when we're being nurtured by our families, then we'll bond and connect with each other. And that will be enough. But that doesn't always happen in life. And that's not a person's fault. That's something that they've come into or something that they've inherited. If there is kind of like you said, intergenerational or inherited trauma. So, if you don't have that bond and that connection with those people, you know the people that are meant to love you, the people that should love you, then you might bond with something else. So, if you've been traumatized, isolated, or just kind of beaten down by by life, you will bond with something that gives you a sense of relief. Now, that could be gambling, it could be cell phone, it could be um, drugs, it could be pornography, it could be drinking, but you will bond with something because that is inherently our nature. That's what That's we want right. to do as human beings.
2: And uh, you could perhaps even say that you're bonding in order to feel love. Because at the end of the day, I, I, I strongly believe that it is about love. It is, But not this type of love that we so very often hear about, but um, this type of love that is much bigger than ourselves. Mm. And that is beyond what we necessarily know now, but it is it is about love. You're seeking love through drugs, shopping, marathon running, sex, yeah. internet,
0: porn. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, There's another resource that we're going to add to our resources page, like including um, the the Gabel Maté book that I've just mentioned. But it is a talk by author Johan Hari called Everything We Know About Addiction is Wrong. Yes. Yes. And remember, Maud, how he ended it because you said love. And it just reminded me the way he ends that is You know, talking about the addicts in his life, he's like, the core message is to let the addicts in your life know that you're not alone, that you love them. Um, And that should be how we, as human beings, as responsible human beings, treat all members of society, and that's how we should treat them personally, socially, politically, individually. For 100 years now, we've had this drugs war, you know, the war on drugs, which we can go into afterwards about how that's just not working and how there are alternatives available. But um, Johan Hari finishes his TED Talk uh, with, um, for 100 years now, we've been singing war songs about addicts. I think the whole time we should have been singing love songs to addicts. And I just thought that is just... A, like a one sentence way to encapsulate the way we should be looking at addicts. Don't be scared as a first aider, um, as someone on, on a boat. Don't be afraid of kind of getting involved. Don't judge them. Don't look down on them. Don't isolate them. Don't, don't put them in a position where you know uh, these interventions are quite popular. I, not popular, but they're quite uh, prevalent. Don't put them in a position where you're 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 saying if you don't behave the way we want to, we will we will isolate ourselves from you because you're not behaving the way that we think is socially acceptable so yeah that's he's he's a great person to to get involved in his books as well
2: he's is he's a good being that one definitely in my in my books anyway Mm. but um do you know when you said don't do this don't do that there's a part of me as you said it i'm thinking and then it's like saying to us don't breathe I, i think perhaps i say perhaps a lot so I'm going to stop saying it now. But, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's okay to have a judgment because the only way for you to not have a judgment is to be a cucumber. You're a human being. You are going to have a judgment. And very often it might be one that you don't want to have. But what we can do and what we can raise our consciousness and awareness to is that you don't have to believe everything you think. And you don't have to be with that judgment. You can hold it. And concomitantly, you can move forward from that and go to this other place where you have more compassion. So that the result of that piece of thinking then helps you transcend said judgment
0: and um,
2: said biases, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, I'm taking that forward. Thank you, Maud.
2: <laughs> Welcome.
0: So um,
1: can go I ahead. ask Maud of just sort of understanding, you know, uh, in some ways, um, when people are younger, they think, oh, well, I can socially smoke and, you know, I'll give up. Or, you know, I only go out for a couple of drinks every Thursday, or Friday night, or uh, any number of things. You know, I, I only have ice cream when, whatever. And as we all know, things can develop into habits. Um, I, I think maybe what I'm asking is, uh, just to understand a bit more clearly, where is the line in our in what's happening to us between where we're just drinking a little bit too much, but we probably can stop if we choose to we no longer have control on it. Because I think that's a fuzzy line for a lot of people. And sometimes it can be in the company you're with. If you're if you're working in a crowd that goes out a lot, well then, you know, I mean I geez, when I was a student, I remember 10 pints was sort of the top level that people would drink um unfortunately i wasn't into beer so i didn't get to that level but um you know that's kind of what i'm um asking just for a clearer understanding of where do we tip you said we potentially are all well we all are addicts but potentially we it's could not
2: potentially is that we all are But, you know, uh, we can... That's where it's really difficult because there will always be a fuzzy line because there's too many factors in order for us to be able to to talk about it. We could talk about it until the cows come home and we could talk about it for hours and there would still be a fuzzy line because some people will have the neurobiology that is more... um, Ready towards that addiction, and others that won't. So, uh, going to hospital, you're gonna have lots of pain medicine, but you might not get addicted to that. So it's not necessarily the drug that is addictive per se, though they are. I mean, some of them more than others. But cheese is as addictive as heroin. You. Sugar being a poison is also addictive. Love d- will light up the, um, the feeling of love, will light up the same areas of the brain as addiction. So some people will be more influenced to go towards it than others. And that in itself creates a fuzzy line, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. when you're a 16-year-old and say you are neurotypical, uh, if there is ever such a thing in the first place, And your mates are going down the pub or getting alcohol and smoking and you want to be part of the group, you're going to do it. Say you're carrying trauma and your parents have uh, dysregulated emotions and have had for the past 100 years and it's passed down in the family, it makes you more susceptible. But at that time, you will not know it. And because we live in a system and this is what needs to change in order for the line to not be fuzzy, I think in my mind is that we live in a system that perpetuates that line, that fuzziness, because there is a fundamental lack of education. In the US, it's not a legal requirement to actually um, give true information when it's come to sex life and relationship in class. (laughs) In UK, it is, it is not a legal requirement. In UK, there is a fundamental lack of sex education and relationship education. And actually there is a, a big who are about it. And uh, a lot of it is supposed to start in September, actually in some school, which is a really great step. And this is how, in my mind, we are gonna be able to articulate emotions in a different way and know more about ourselves to not go down that road is through education from a very tender age. Mm. Because that fuzzy line is created by not knowing, by your hormones flooding your body and being a teen, and you will never live things as intensely as you will in your teens, by that desire to be connected and to be part of a group so yeah it is a complex aspect. you know that in
1: itself you know very much continues i i mean the human brain isn't really fully mature till your late 20s
2: so 25
1: average yeah everyone thinks oh i'm 21 i'm totally grown up and yes you are an adult but then you get to 30 and you realize actually you were still growing up so much during your 20s um but you know it it i i it, Affects all ages, and it. I think the other thing is addictions can start at different ages. You know. Good God, yes. That there isn't a cut-off age where you should be a bit more grown up or responsible or serious or or whatever it is in your head that would stop you forming an addiction.
2: No, yeah. Do you know what's really funny though about addict, well this word addiction—is that the brain, from a neuro biological standpoint does not like it in the first place because it will drive towards the middle of the pendulum. So, and by pendulum, I mean, in life, there is like a sense of equilibrium. Something good happens, something bad will happen. There's a, there's a continuum there. It swings from one to the other. And we see that in all areas of our life. The brain mimics exactly the same thing. So if you give a drug, if you take drugs, you will have a a craving, you will have a compulsion around around it, you will have a tolerance effect and then a dependence. But that that tolerance and that dependence, it is your brain saying, I don't want to be happy all the time. I need an equilibrium, therefore I'm going to create tolerance and you're going to need to give me more because I want to be able to go from one way to the other. Naturally, we do that. Naturally, we know that we need an equilibrium. That's the reason why the work to be done with people who are exhibiting those symptoms is not about the drug per se, or the shopping per se, or the sex per se, but it's about how am I with myself, how can I learn to go deep within and be with the uncomfortable? Mm. Be with what is difficult. Be with things I do not understand. Be okay with the unknown. And when that work happens, when you wade through your own pain and you learn that actually you're not gonna break, you're okay you do not have to believe everything you think, then the, the shopping, the sex, the internet, the food changes because you're learning that there is an equilibrium. I don't know if I explained that well.
0: No, you did. I was fascinated. I was kind of totally drawn in. Um, and I think, I think by extension as well, I think we've got a really limited view of all mental health issues. We've got a very limited view of addiction. And I think we've got quite a limited view of treatment in terms of um, it's got to be like a biological thing or it's got to be a pharmacological kind of thing. We don't we don't realize the importance of the environment. You know, when you were talking before, it's interesting because we've been sold this story that it's there's a chemical hook You know, you take heroin once, you just dare to take heroin once, there's going to be those chemical hooks and then that's it. You will be hooked for life. But we know that's not to be true. We know that people go into um, hospitals, they have um, some version of morphine that helps them. They can have it quite like a sustained period and no one's coming out of hospital completely addicted in the numbers that are having these morphine so we need to stop thinking maybe um traditionally as we've been doing so uh, less about that it's a chemical hook and the pharmacological uh, like idea of it and more about the cage the, the environment that the person's in and there's a, an amazing experiment um, do you know about rat park
2: alexander
0: Yes, Professor Alexander. I'm not sure where he's from, but um, for anyone that doesn't know about this, um, Professor Alexander, he came up with this um, experiment where they put... a rat in a cage with nothing else, one bottle of pure water, one bottle of heroin water. And the rat drank the heroin water, and it was pretty much 100% overdose, fatality, rat dead. Um, and then someone else came along, and read looked at this in the, must have been the 60s. And um, he said, well, hang on a minute. Okay, fine. that." you know, I get that, but let's do an extension of this experiment. And he decided to make this thing called Rat Park, which is basically rat heaven. You know, the rats had loads of food, Um, they had colourful balls to play with, there was tunnels that they could explore, but most crucially, most importantly, they had other rats, they had other rats to connect with, they could have as much sex as they wanted. So this was the rat heaven. They still had the the two bottles of water, pure water and heron water. And when rats were in Rat Park, when they had social lives and connection and sex and food, none of them, it, the, the numbers just completely plummeted to like less than 1%, which I find so fascinating. So I think we need to kind of step back from what we've been told and what we've understood and, and maybe kind of um, consciously been taken in by what the media is selling us or what these uh, treatment therapy places are telling us. and um, and think about treating the addict as a person that's disconnected and needing help rather than needing isolation.
2: Mm, couldn't agree more. The, um, in terms of treatment, in terms of therapy, if you go to see a therapist, there'll be um, CBT, and there'll be a humanistic therapist, or there'll be psychodynamics therapist which all have a different stance and a different length of treatment and a different approach. The underlying is that any good therapist, touch wood, should be uh, able to, uh, to have their heart into it. And it is the relationship more than the actual uh, way of doing things that, that is therapeutic and that will really, really help through. So in that sense, that's how it should happen. But I think what we really, really need to think about also is that we have made the world at our image. And we like things to happen quickly. Yesterday, we don't want to wait. We don't want to be with what is uncomfortable. And at the risk of repeating myself, this is what needs to happen, is that looking within so, really deep within of about what is it to be a human being it is not about capitalism it's not about survival it's not about money it's about something else and the way we are living is killing us
0: absolutely and it is I mean the the way that we've been kind of we are rats in rat park at the moment and I think we've kind of sacrificed friends for floor space. We've kind of gone through industrialization. We've, we're not living in multi-generational tribes anymore. We've, we've now put ourselves into these isolated box, these, you know, where you live with maybe one person and your family, where that one person has to be your, your lover, your partner, your financial advisor, your counselor. So as we kind of like made our world smaller and smaller, these problems have now kind of grown bigger and bigger around us. And the problem is that I think commercialism or capitalism really, it seems something in that and it's not gonna do anything to change it. So the, the impetus is for us, you know, when society creates these artificial needs instead of meeting people's genuine needs, So, you know, we're escaping into cell phones or we're escaping into alcohol, we're escaping everything instead of looking inside of ourselves. And that's where I think we haven't talked about it yet, but I think that's one of the elements that the 12-step program encourages people to do is suspend what society is telling you and maybe look for something deeper, like transcend what the societal norms are and look to whatever you prescribe as a God, whether that's mother nature, whether that's a a person sitting on a cloud, whether it's, you know what I mean? And I think that's part of it. That's a lot of people misunderstand when they, they don't know or have never gone through the 12 steps, but what I would understand to be one of the most important things and one of the most important steps within it, what would you think?
2: Um, I think the, the, the twelve steps are so amazingly popular because that's exactly what they do. They they afford you that vast and expensive space of introspection, of being able to do that thing, of looking deep within and seeing what you've done, making yourself own your shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Be accountable. And don't look outside don't have an external locus of evaluation anymore but look really within to build this internal locus of evaluation of based on love and accountability and ownership yeah that's what the 12 steps afford you and though it was built up from a christian point of view it's it's very much available and accessible to all manners of people. You don't need to be Christian. And I want to say that because I think it's really important because we don't have to do that at the letter of Christianism and perhaps put it beyond that 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 level of introspection. Does, does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think just putting an emphasis individually and societally on intrinsic values rather than extrinsic values is is where we all need to be heading and something that we can do for ourselves to make ourselves, you know, better human beings within our world. But then that that energy kind of emanates out. If you take that into your relationships with everyone, if you treat them with kindness, if you, you, you form connections and bonds with people that, and maybe there is, you know, maybe there is an addict in your life or someone that's you, it's going to be hard to love. Like you said, it's hard to suspend judgment in these things, but Letting them know that you love them, that you 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 love them in whatever state they are, and even if they are an addict, and that you value them rather than their status as an addict, is potentially a good way of starting a conversation—a really difficult conversation that I think most people would want to avoid or or feel too scared to to enter into.
1: Can I ask, um, just from understanding different? types of recovery or different paths to recovery um you know my generation all of us were smokers and one of of all the people I know that went from being smokers to non-smokers at that stage the Alan Carr book came out of how Mm -hmm. to start smoking I remember Um, that it was truly one of the not just most popular but most effective books you know he had been a smoker for 60 years um and um but the process was it was a very very repetitive book to read but it was quite small but it was very very effective in kind of switching your mindset you know one of the things and i was thinking of this when you were talking earlier was he gives the example and i think smoking is a very good example because it doesn't doesn't have the effects of harder drugs or alcohol or but when he, one one things he was saying is, you know, smokers, they want to smoke when they're happy or when they're relaxed or when they're stressed or he, they can attribute the need to smoke with all sorts of emotional experiences. Um, but really the addiction in itself is it will take you and, you know, by the time you wake up in the morning, you're already 12 hours out of it. You don't wake up at three in the morning saying, I've got to have a cigarette right now. But it didn't get into anything Deeper, but the process of reading this book for so many people I know just helps switch their mindset. So I'm trying to understand then how does that work, or does that just work with something like smoking because other things are harder?
2: I think it's very much dependent on the person. It has to first and foremost, the person wants to be able to change. Mm-hmm. Even if they have no clue how or when or who, it has to come from them. Yeah. That first step. And then it needs to come with concrete learnings because thinking about things is all very good, but it has to come with concrete happenings as well.
1: Um, yeah. And I think that that's one of the, there's a smoking ad here in, in Ireland and they, they started by saying with a smoker saying, every time someone, you know, I see an anti-smoking thing on, it just makes me want to smoke, Um, which is the, you know, funny contrast on our head, you know, and that was his, one of the points in the Alan Carr book of, I want you to smoke. And even when you want to stop, I want you to smoke to the end of the book, because then you will really want to stop. Because now you've been pushed into something you
2: don't want to do in some ways there is a power of suggestion as where at play somewhere along the line mm-hmm. in that in the in his book for sure um but um I mean, what I do you can talk about sexual addiction as well and actually we don't talk about sexual addiction anymore per no, se we don't we, really do we no, we don't. We we talk we talk COVID about it in of, you know, <laughs> nobody's having been access. having sex for about a year. What's um... COVID? <laughs> I've
0: not heard of it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, th- th- this this I think this is the learning. This is the realization that this being with this is being human and is a lifetime learning. There is no shortcut. There's no easy getaway card it is a lifelong learning a lifelong living and addiction is in the way we understand it is wrong It's this why is it painful for people to live why, why is it so difficult for them to be with it with, with what they've got within and and the more advanced in bracket society gets and the more people get scared to be with themselves because they have barely any time to discover who they are and be with emotions. And when you think about it, emotions, there's not that many of them, you know, um, happiness, disgust, anger, surprise, grief. fear. Those are the emotions. But then being with them, now that's another story. We spend our lifetime running away from them and when you can't find something within, you will seek it in another person or in an external
0: influence, whatever
2: it may be. So it is being with emotions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a cycle afterwards, you know, you get what you think you need from the, the substance, the person, the... The vaseline. Exactly. And then you have this kind of brief respite where you're just like, oh, because you think that what you need, you think what you've just got is what you've needed. And then comes the remorse. Why did I do that? Why did I sleep with that person? Why did I take the cocaine? Why did I buy that thing that I can't afford? And then it starts that cycle, that awful cycle back up again of of feeling like, you know, I'm vulnerable again and I need to I need that back in my life to make me feel normal again. So they're constantly chasing that, that brief respite, that feeling of normalcy, which they think they're getting from the addiction, the addictive behavior or the substance. But actually what they need to do is kind of take a step back and do some kind of therapy or do some kind of explorative work in a safe, compassionate environment, which Mm. we just don't get with addicts in this society.
2: Oh, we do in some spaces, I would say. I, w- oh, no. I would disagree with that because I'm a therapist and I see a lot of them. So I can tell you that at least at least there's at least one me. I can't talk for anybody else, but I think um, they, they, they are good people doing really good work out there. What I do agree with is that the overall system does not enable people at large full stop. And also that we are fighting. Within, with the biology that we have because to be able to have less chance of developing um, addictive behaviors, you have to have a good relationship with endorphins. Endorphins comes with love. When someone's beaten the crap out of you for 12 years, you're not going to have endorphins and you're going to look for them somewhere else. So every time you take a drug, or you have compulsion for shopping, whatever, you get that. So that natural brain connection you should have with endorphin is replaced by this artificial one. So in those terms, you have to think of a human being that has been rearranged, and I will not say damaged, because... I think that despite the fact that you may have gone through trauma galore in your life, you can genuinely find a space of contentment. And I'm not saying that lightly, but your whole systems have been rearranged. And thus, you have to find what works for you. And it's very likely it might not be the norm that the perceived norm for a given society, it might be that you need to spend a couple of hours in the sea, day in, day out, winter like summer, in order for you to be able to not have your skin crawl and not want to take your own life. It might be having to have quite what would we perceive more extreme behaviors, but that do not hurt yourself and do not hurt others and aren't of a... Um, bad financial decision do you know what I mean so they're, they're, they may not be the norm and yet they're good for you mm. yeah. so that's something else to think about your whole system gets rearranged if you don't get loved and then what do you do with that you cannot talk to addict and say well you need to do that you need to take a step back because you can't you just cannot Something else has to happen, this this discovery within of what is right for me. Is it to curl up in a ball in my living room, rocking in a corner with a knife in my hands, or is it to get out and walk for three hours? But yeah. that discovery, that being able to master the bravery within to get up and let go of that implement and get out of the house, that piece is phenomenal in itself. Just a little example to put things in perspective. Lovely.
1: <laughs> I think the uh, we were chatting before we, we started this and, um, i think tied in you know with the concept of i mean really self-love is also letting go of things like guilt and shame and things like that and um when we were chatting beforehand emma was talking about how very differently they do it in different cultures and the huge difference that makes and i think it's a really good example of also um understanding so emma would you kind of share about the the viewpoint from Portugal and how that has made a difference just for the kind of bigger cultural context?
0: Um, yeah, well, I think what's so impressive about Portugal is that they've been watching the, the nations like England, like America, wage this war on drugs. Um, and they decided to do the exact opposite. Um, I think it was 2000s, about 20, 21 years ago, um, they had, you know, a really terrible problem with drugs in Europe. Um, It wasn't getting any better. The punishments were getting stronger. The sentences were getting longer and they just weren't getting on top of this kind of tidal wave of uh, addiction. And this is primarily drug addiction we're talking about, but I'm sure there were other variations and facets of addiction. So they, and even this concept is so alien to us 20 years ago, 20 years later, they, they formed a coalition. So the, um, the Prime Minister or President of Portugal and the leader of the opposition decided to get together and to suspend what they were doing and really spend some time um, looking at a strategy and a way forward for them, for their country, for their um, for their individuals. And they enlisted scientists, uh, consultants, therapists. They, they created this board and they asked them to go away and they asked them to explore this, this question. And when they came, back they said okay we've we've got an answer take all the money that you are spending on incarcerating people putting people away running public health um uh, notices about stop drugs and everything take all of that money and instead decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to cocaine in Portugal and you can see this is obviously kind of like oh wow big moment and they said Put all of that money that you've now saved from the prisons and the the sentences and the policing, and this is the crucial part, put it into reconnecting those people with other human um, beings. So, don't put them in prison, don't isolate them, rather give them uh, mentorships, uh, rather get them into talking therapies, CBT. Um, they had part of the, the grant, I believe, was to get them um, meaningful work. So, get them, you know, if they were a mechanic, get them an apprenticeship or, and, and say to the person that was hiring them, listen, we'll give you half, we'll subsidize their pay, but give them something to, to wake up for every single morning. Beyond what they've been kind of getting up for, and reconnect them into society, and the numbers are just like outstanding. They've um, they've been integrated back into society. It's fifty well, it was twenty years since uh, the experiment kind of like started. I don't know when it started, but I know that two thousand uh, it was two thousand. OK, I, I knew that they started talking about it in 2000. So that's impressive that they went straight into it as well. Um, I know that according to the British Journal of Criminology, um, drug use is down in Portugal by 50 percent. Um, that's five zero, not one five. Um, overdoses are massively down. Um, I believe other things like HIV, which are, are other problems that obviously you get with um. Uh, with injecting. So those problems are down and that money is now being circulated back into the treatment and integration of addicts into meaningful work and meaningful connections in society. So it can be done in a different way. And I kind of just want to Say 100 more. When when I spoke out, it wasn't that I was speaking out of out of term. I'm I'm quite excited. This this is a subject. You know, I'm excited to be here with you guys and to hear your opinion and everything. You're absolutely right. There are a lot of people doing a lot of good work. Um, it's just there's also a lot of governments. And I personally, I mean, this could, we could do a whole different kind of like conversation about the monetization of imprisoning people in America. Oh yes. Now, but we understand that there. Is, there is a there's an economy behind putting people in jail and that is not the way to treat addiction absolutely not we've got a clear understanding of how it can be done in Portugal and it's something that I think is really important to to look more into if you're interested in yes so I think right.
1: it, it it also relates to people who are in leadership positions you know in our industry looking at captains but even relevant to people you're trying to help in the world um, around the world would be the the fact that your approach and and how you you
2: know we sorry one sec Mm. Dave you immigrated to the US at the turn of the century and he took his uh, lovely uncle's research on how to manipulate people. Yeah. I'm and so glad you he brought has this a lot up. to answer for.
1: <laughs> I, I've quoted you loads of times, but I can never remember his name, but Barnais.
2: <laughs> Barnais. Barnais, yeah. He was a horrible, horrible man. And he invented, in a way, that side of capitalism of, of how do I make people desire something they don't need? And and he brought that with him, and and, and do you know what? I think that if it hadn't been him, it would have been someone else later on. But Barnes in his history will go down for the man who yeah, invented that greediness in in such an extreme way. Because being greedy is also human. You know, you I can have that. I will have that. That.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We were having this conversation last night um, and we said, you know, we were talking about a whole plethora of problems. And at the end of it, we kind of just had to conclude that the motivation behind all of our problems from everything, from systemic racism to deforestation to climate change to addicted, unconnected humans is greed. Mm -hmm. Either greed for more power, greed for more resources, Greed for more money, its that's the kind of root evil of, and probably the downfall of, of oh, downfall of humanity, that sounds very dystopian, but like we're heading Not in a direction. so dire- much now. <laughs> well, yeah, unfortunately, but we're definitely heading in a direction, I think everyone can agree, um, that's just, it, I mean, there has to be systemic change. There has to be some kind of event or, or um, someone just, saying no enough stop this is where it ends this is how we now start looking after ourselves how we start looking after each other and how we start looking after our planet
2: in order to be able to do that it means that we have to relinquish what we conceptualize as power and power is in the hands of people who are very little in their mind who have suffered themselves mostly and you know that Going back to trauma and where it is in the space, you look at in history and you look at the leaders that we've got now all over the world. And if you look at their own stories and the inter- intergenerational drama and trauma that they bring up in their own life, and then we go back to what we were talking about in, uh, you know, earlier on, it is there. We seek power in order to compensate for something we don't have, to
0: fill up an emptiness. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I think you look at all of the, the leaders that we have now and we've had in the last couple of generations. You know, I know you don't like the word damaged, but there is a lot of trauma and for want of a better word, damage in the leaders. And these are the ones that are advising us, making policy, shaping our world, and we're kind of... And, you know, we, we understand that they need help and they deserve help as well, but it's, it's kind of a very worrying trend that so many of them find themselves in power of our lives and our planet.
2: They've been rearranged themselves, but they don't know that they have. Yeah, absolutely. And... I know that sounds like really Buddhist, but you have to see the light inside rather than trying to find it with the glimmer and shiny thing outside because it will never compensate.
0: No, agree. Fully uh, agree.
2: Can I... That was what I quite to, philosophical.
1: It well, was, and it, one of my favorite mantras in the world was from my sister, you know, it's great to have friends and sisters and family that tell you things that just remain these little pearls of wisdom. But, um, and this was actually before my whole family was coming to descend on me and I was beginning to freak out. And um, (laughs) she had talked to me about a book she had read and that, you know, you were talking about there aren't that many emotions. And this boiled it down to there are two main emotions. We have love and we have fear. And the extension of love is acceptance and the extension of fear is control.
2: Oh, hang on. You've got a debate there in the waiting because um, uh, love is, (laughs) what is love? Is it an emotion or a feeling? Do you know that for centuries people have been debating about that and we still don't know. Love is not necessarily an emotion. It perhaps is a feeling, but I can't tell you for sure because having researched it for two year i still don't know but i know that you yeah. have more than than two emotions
1: oh technically yes. you do of course but right. two kind of more concrete ones and sometimes if you just want to make life black and white you know you just want to look at something very clearly one way or the other I'll just stop and I'm like, is this coming from a place of love or is this coming from a place of fear? Are they reacting to me and what I'm seeing is because they're in a place of fear
2: Agreed. and therefore they're trying to control. It makes so sense. is it coming from your back brain, your ancient brain, or is it coming from your frontal cortex? Basically. Yes. Yeah.
1: See? Black and white. Anyway, um, I'm going to have to edit a bit of this wonderful philosophical I I kept it recording again, because sometimes you know, you think, Oh, why didn't I keep recording? However, I'm not going to fit it all in. So um, uh, I we have about five minutes or menos to kind of wrap it up. Um, So I'm going to do a little pause and Emma, where do you think we should jump
0: in? Um, I think we should kind of wrap it up um, with a kind of uh, a a feeling of hope. I mean, we always try and do that, that there is help help available, that you're not alone. So maybe kind of, you know, talk about it more, not less, empathy connection and then just kind of say wrap it up for Maud as well and then let everyone know where they can get help and how they can get help. And perhaps... um...
2: In terms of concrete action, if there was someone there who's thinking, mm, is there something about me to say that a concrete way of thinking about it is what what, what am I doing, what am I trying to replace, and what, what is my pain, what, I, what is hiding behind what I'm doing? I don't know. What do you think? Yep. Perfect. Perfect. So,
1: we only have a little bit left in this episode before we finish off. But Maud, if I can, you know, for those that are tuning in and they're thinking about this, where's the kind of first, first place for them to go in their heads, in their minds, and in, in that first step forward on trying to figure it out?
2: So if if I'd say if someone then thinks that there's something they're doing too much of or they're not happy with or it's creating them distress whatever that behavior may be it would be to ask themselves uh, perhaps what, what, what is my pain what am I trying to replace by that behavior um, mm-hmm. and that 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 first steps of thinking about it would would be helpful and then seek help concrete help of Whatever it may look like for them in terms of whether or not there's codependency co- or um, alcohol or drugs shopping sex, good psych- psychosexual counselors, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. And
1: um, Emma, from you know your perspective?
0: Um, yeah, well, Maud said what um, the individual could do. So I'm going to say as a crew member or as a head of department, what um, I think would be best is to to kind of sit with this with this talk. Uh, think about your relationship with uh, what addiction is, what it means to you, where you have got your information from. If it's just from the media, maybe you need to kind of look inside and decide like how you want to kind of um, think about it um, rather than being told what your relationship with an addict should be. I think stealing from kind of Gabor Maté, you know, deal with um, any addict with or someone that you suspect has a problem with addiction, deal with it with empathy, compassion, connection, and hope. Um, we always say that hope is central to recovery. And if you can give that person that you um, think is experiencing um, some kind of addiction in their life, give them the, the hope that recovery is not only, it's just, it's likely and um, it's central to the recovery process.
2: Yeah. And can I say just that as something I thought as well, which feels really important to say is that the um, the behaviors that we have in our life mostly derive from us trying to keep ourselves safe and very often emanate from a very tender place in, in, in our sense of self we try to protect ourselves and then it turns out that it's completely maladaptive but initially we meant good part of us meant really good and and that's something to really really remember because nobody nobody at least I've never met anybody who went out of their way to To be an alcoholic or to be a drug addict, just trying to access a space that perhaps seems inaccessible for them on a daily basis. Initially, it was to protect ourselves. Wonderful.
1: Maud, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. uh, I'm delighted to have you on air again and not just keeping your wisdom to myself as we chat. Um, Emma, uh, as always, love doing these with you. I have learned so much during this series, and there's lots more to come. But I always am left feeling positive. Um, a little mention, and I do on on each one. If you are struggling with anything, and you're yachting on board. There is help and support around, but particularly to let you know about Yacht Crew Help, which is the bilingual 24-7 helpline, free to all yachties wherever you are in the world, and if they they will be able to point you in the right direction of the support you need. So um, please remember that, and if you want to get in touch with Emma, Emma?
0: Yeah, you can get in touch with me. You can find me online um, if you go to, um, if you Google search Kelly's cause, and then we have a page called Seize the Mind that is yachting hospitality specific. Um, and if you want to get to hold of me directly, um, you can get a hold of me, at Emma at Mind.co.uk, and I'll be available there yeah. to talk about the training, how you can implement training for yourself, bring it onto your boat, and get maybe some more resources if you should need so. And anything
1: we have referenced in this um, broadcast podcast, we will be linking it up on our website. And if you go to our podcast site, which is yachtcast.me, I will also have the um, references included in the podcast as well. So lots of different sources and any other questions, you always feel free to contact us at studio at superyachtradio.com. Anyway, stay well, stay safe wherever you are in the world. And remember, there is support and love around you. Stay well.
0: This is Super Yacht Radio.